0: listen up get ready i'm not gonna take no more there's a revolution a revelation going on in my soul
1: buckle up get ready we're
2: not gonna sit back. welcome all you brothers and sisters friends and neighbors friends and family whoever you are wherever you are citizens of the world welcome to another edition of the live from the heartland show i am michael james i am here in chicago we're recording this via zoom from Chicago was fighting 49th Ward. And a little bit later, we're going to have one of our best pals and sometimes host of the show and a producer of the show, Tom Clark, on. And then we're going to have Corky Siegel, who will be celebrating his 80th birthday with a special concert. Longtime viewers of the show know that periodically, when we try to do it on air and stream, we've had trouble, technical troubles. I remember the days at the Heartland Cafe when we would jump up from the stage where the show is about to be uh, recorded and broadcast, and we'd go over to Loyola to the studio, which was then up in Rogers Park, and do the show from there. Uh, For a number of years, we did it downtown at the studios on Pearson. And with the pandemic, we've been doing it via Zoom, which really allowed us to uh, talk to people all over the world. And we like that, but sometimes we have trouble hooking up. Last week, after a number of weeks of problems, we were on air, and hopefully this one will be on air, as well as CAN TV, YouTube.com slash Heartland Media, et cetera. I'm focused on Rising Up Angry, an organization that I helped to start in 1969. Right after this show, I'm heading to a reunion of Rising Up Angry members and supporters, and I'm glad to say that my newest book, Rising Up Angry, will be out, hopefully, when you're listening to this show. And we are going to have a book reading and book signing put on by the Roman Susan Gallery people at Berger Park, 7 o'clock on November 20th. So I'll be there with books, and I'll do a reading, and we'll have some discussion. Okay, some not-so-good things going on in the world. We've got war in Israel. We've got war in Ukraine. We've got famine in Africa. And we have an outbreak of resistance in Guatemala. Here in Chicago, the conditions with arriving migrants and the issues and uh, concerns it has caused have led some Chicagoans to question our sister city relationship, our sister country relationship, and really take a pretty negative stand about these future friends, neighbors, and voters here in Chicago with a kind of not in my backyard, sowing the seeds of not in my backyard. We don't want immigrants in our community. Some of it is justified because a lot of people were promised things for a number of years, didn't get them and now resources are being put into the migrant crisis while other people been waiting a long time for some attention are still waiting. So I understand the contradiction. It's a challenge. We have to figure out how to go forward. Let's take a quick peek at Israel, which we'll probably talk about with our guest Tom Clark. But uh, I did see in The New Yorker a quote that I found interesting. You know, many of you who listen to the show know we've been pretty critical of Israel as an apartheid state and its treatment of Palestinians. That doesn't mean we can't be grieving and very critical of the latest state of affairs. I did see in The New Yorker talked about Israel with a foreign policy that has been keyed to annexation and dispossession, and that ignored the existence and rights of Palestinians. Mother Jones reported an interview with Matt Deuce, DUSS, a former top foreign policy aide to Bernie Sanders. It appeared in Politico. And I think he sums it up pretty well. There is no justification for attacking civilians, for slaughtering civilians, for kidnapping elderly people in wheelchairs. He went on to say, if we believe in human dignity, if we believe in international law, I think we need to condemn that unequivocally. That does not mean we can't have a deeper conversation about the context of the situation, Israel-Palestine. We have to have that conversation. But I think the way into that conversation has to be very clear about principles of civilian protection and very clear on how disgusting this violence is. Taking a little look in our own hemisphere over down in Guatemala, there's rising tensions in Guatemala, protests by supporters of President-elect Bernardo Arevalo. They've run into the second week. Protesters are demanding the resignation of the attorney general, her last name is Consuelo Porras. They accuse Ms. Porras of plotting to prevent Mr. Audevalo, who has promised to fight corruption from taking office. Some of the protests just turned violent after a week of peaceful protests. And it turns out that these are agent provocateurs, probably from the existing government, who— Threw stones and broke windows at a demonstration outside the National Palace of Culture in the capital, Guatemala City. On the labor front, a lot of strikes going on. United Auto Workers is in the fourth week of their strike. My union, SAG-AFTRA, is still on strike. I did see a headline that said, Hollywood Strike Stings Warner Brothers. Profit outlook for the year trimmed by as much as $500 million. And here in Chicago, home base to Walgreens, well, a suburb, I saw this today. It said employees of two of the largest drugstore chains, that would be Walgreens and CVS, say harsh working conditions make it difficult to safely fill prescriptions, which could put the health of their customers at risk. Now they are demanding change by staging a series of walkouts across the country. And CNN reported that a coalition of unions representing thousands of Kaiser Permanente health workers have warned that they will walk off the job again next month if a deal is not reached with their employers. Taking a look at the U.S. Congress, not so good. On Wednesday, the Republicans put up Steve Scalise as their nominee for Speaker of the House. He will go up probably against Jim Jordan a little bit. I'm not sure how it's gonna work, but the Republicans seem divided. And let's be really clear, Jim Jordan knew about the plans that Trump had for January 6th. I mean, this guy is really, he's really terrible. You know, when he was an assistant coach in wrestling at ohio state uh there was some kind of a a little bit of a scandal around sexual harassment and a number of i think five wrestlers went to him and reported on it he denies all of it so this is one evil guy that we're talking about having possibly be in line to the presidency Okay, on the good front, Loyola University, our home base is WLUW-887, Loyola University's wonderful station, they're on pace right now to be totally solar at the university by 2025. They announced that the university has signed an agreement in partnership with Constellation to purchase power from a new solar project under development in Sangamon and Morgan counties in Illinois. That's a good one. We're happy about that. Also good, Blackhawks won their home opener. The Bears won a week ago on a Thursday, and we'll see how they do coming up again. And the Bulls are about to start playing some ball, and records were set in both the men's and women's marathon this past Sunday in Chicago. If you missed last week's show, we had Marilyn Katz on talking about teaching about Fred Hampton's life in Chicago public schools. We also talked a little bit about Israel before the current crisis in Palestine, Israel has broken out. And we also had Johnny Bergen, who was playing on the 21st at the Skokie Theater. And we talked to him in Japan. And both of those you can find at YouTube.com slash You can find them either solo or the whole show. I think that's going to be it for our little bit of opening banner. And we will be right back after a little musical break with our first guest, Tom Clark. All right, everybody, stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. Welcome back to more Live from the Heartland. I'm Michael James here in Chicago. And it really brings me a lot of pleasure, honestly and truly, to bring in our next guest, the one and only Tom Clark, who many of you know has been a host on this show, a co-producer of the show, and someone that I like to go to for information because he thinks out a lot of stuff and has a lot to share. And we've been talking about him coming on for a while, He's involved in this race and equity project, which he'll tell us about. But given the status of uh, the world and the crisis that is unfolding in the Middle East, as well as some stuff right in our face here at home, we're going to talk about a few things first. So without further ado, as some people used to say, hi, Tom, how are you?
1: Good day to you, Michael. I'm doing fine. Thank you.
2: Good to see you, brother. Well, we're going to talk about the Race and Equity Project, which you have been involved with and want to share about. But the news hit us last week pretty heavy, what's uh, unfolding in the Middle East. We've been longtime supporters of a better deal for Palestinian people, but the horrendous killing of civilians and stuff has really shaken up a lot of people. What's your take on Israel-Palestine conflict these days? How do we get into this mess?
1: Well, as I reflected with some of my family, some 50 years ago when I was a junior at Loyola's Rome Center, I, I took off a semester early and actually spent two weeks on a kibbutz in northern Israel. Um, as a practicing Catholic, also got to visit the Holy Land um, and uh, was very well treated by the settlers in that pretty small kibbutz. felt I had studied up on Israel, and and this is like three years after the Six-Day War, which was still very much fresh in people's mind and um uh, you know our, our our friends both here and in israel uh refer to this as their 9 11. uh it's clearly been a shock what hamas did um but i think in as i review the media coverage i've also been shocked at how one-sided uh the coverage has been because there's a long arc of history behind this conflict And while I'm not making any excuses for Hamas and their horrific actions, um, similar actions have been taking place by the government, not by Israelis themselves, but by the government, particularly in regards to the West Bank, as well as isolating the Gaza Strip. There are international agreements that Hamas once agreed to to create a two-state solution to this ongoing historical hundred years old battle over who owns that piece of land. And the fact is, many faiths have a legitimate hold on that piece of land, as well as the Dome of the Rock itself, which has been the probably immediate cause, along with the actions of the current government for this current conflict. And I don't know how we're going to get out of it, because now there are massive civilian casualties happening uh, across the Gaza Gaza Strip um, in the name of retaliation. And I don't think retaliation ever gets us very far and certainly civilians get caught up in it. uh, Whatever side they might have been on, they're not combatants. Um, UN today uh, uh, suggested that Israel has already committed some war crimes in the cutting off electricity, food, and medicine for hospitals that were already poorly supplied because of the de facto blockade of the Gaza Strip for many years now. So I find myself thinking about the ongoing conflict in Northern Ireland, which everyone thought was irresolvable with the IRA killing British soldiers and and vice versa. And yet a Good Friday Accord was finally negotiated there thanks to President Clinton and his agent, George Mitchell. And I guess I'll leave with a rhetorical. I don't know who our George Mitchell is gonna be today to help resolve this because uh, the, the sides seem to be pretty well entrenched. Uh, both within that land itself, as well as uh, our our government's response. Um, the European Union's response seems to be a little more split in terms of recognizing the rights of Palestinians to survive. And I just think the next few days and weeks are going to be very brutal for both sides, because I don't see anyone quite giving in and ready to shake a hand to peace, which is really what is called for right now.
2: You know, I, I think it's going to be a setback uh, for... Uh, A better deal for Palestinians. I mean, I think that that was sort of on the horizon. Things were moving in a good direction. Uh, I think that that's really on the back burner right now. I did at the beginning of the show read a quote from uh, Matt Duss, D-U-S-S, who was a political aide to Bernie Sanders, where at the end he said, He really talked, he says, that does not mean we can't have a deeper conversation about the context of the situation, Israel-Palestine. We have to have that conversation. But I think the way into that conversation has to be very clear about principles of civilian protection and very clear on how disgusting this violence is.
1: I I couldn't agree more. A a short story. um... I was so incensed at what I saw as one-sided coverage on the initial Saturday night coverage on WGN, which I watch all the time. I wrote the reporter and and, and explained my position, my history, uh, my uh, general knowledge of what's going on on both sides and she actually wrote back and thanked me for my comments and apologized for not deliberately showing bias, but in the moment of, of deadline reporting didn't know much about the other side and so I have fed her information since from our colleague, Marilyn Katz, who you had on last week, and and others, uh, Ray Hanania. And I don't know what she's going to do with that, but she again thanked me for each dispatch I sent her. And it just reminded me that particularly younger reporters covering this uh, have editors kind of framing the story for them, and they may not know better about the history that you and I have lived with so long and have maybe studied a bit more than some people And it's, you know, the lesson I took from this is don't yell at the TV, do something about it. And um,
2: I yell at the TV a lot.
1: (laughs) But I think maybe we need to write letters more often and see what kind of a response we can get from the reporters and editors who are covering the news for us.
2: Yeah, I'm not going to belabor it, but I I was kind of amazed at how the, I think the news has even turned more to a totally pro-Israel stance, which I can understand given the uh, we learned more about the violence and how it came down, but initially, I found the only place I saw anything that even raised the historical issues was MSNBC, and I haven't seen much of that for the last few days.
1: Well, I'm I'm afraid I agree with you, and and we'll see how, uh, how much of a bigger stick uh, uh, story evolves over time. But I, I again recall 9/11, which is the illusion or the metaphor that many Israelis are using right now. Uh, There was tremendous uh, anti-Muslim sentiment right after that horrific act of terror. And, um, you know, I I think that has dissipated over time, but it's not disappeared. We have a former president who began his election campaign uh, on the premise that we should get rid of all Muslims. Uh, And I'm not paraphrasing too much when I say that. So we have these tensions beyond just the land of Palestine and and what the Israeli government might be doing about it right now, that we need to all be looking at how we move beyond that kind of conflict and disdain for other peoples and begin to represent basic humanity.
2: Tom, I'm gonna to switch gears here because I'm sure we're gonna be talking about the Middle East every show for a while. Um, let's bring it home to Chicago where we, we've long been a, a welcoming city. We've met, welcomed immigrants from all over the world. We've continued to do that, Um, but all of a sudden we have uh, certain aldermen starting to question our sister city uh, relationship, our sister country relationship. Uh, We have talk of putting migrants in tents. We have people in certain communities doing, basically throwing, sowing seeds of not in my backyard Um, without really being clear that uh, they have been deprived of some Uh, promises about better schools, better housing, you know, things in their neighborhood. Uh, What's your take on the migrants coming to Chicago and the reaction to it here in the city?
1: Well, we now have had over 17,000 migrants arrive since last year. And uh, that means the problem is close to doubling since uh, Mayor Johnson took over. Um, he did take over a situation that uh, the former mayor had not really prepared the city very well for. Um, uh, if we had been doing something last spring, we maybe could have rehabbed some of the empty buildings around town to provide the kind of housing, which certainly is, is one suggestion uh, Alderman Vasquez, for instance, has made. But we have an immediate problem right now with over 2,000 people, again, in police stations uh, sleeping on the floor. Uh, sleeping in tents outside police stations, and it's getting colder. Um, I'm not even sure that they can get tents up that quick um, if that's the solution, which I don't particularly agree with. Particularly with the company that got hired to do it, um, and to be honest, I blame um, uh, the administration for being a little flat-footed. It also relying on the state that originally signed the contract with this firm that has a shady past, and uh, by my estimation, so I think that. Uh, Brandon Johnson has an almost insurmountable issue to overcome in a, in a few short weeks before we start seeing freezing migrants out on the street. And that's not to count the, the existing homeless and other folks who are doubling up, who aren't officially called homeless, because the city clearly has a significant affordable housing issue that's exacerbated by the ever increasing uh, cost of rent and, for that matter, uh, ownership, which is just spiraling uh the mayor is making his budget statement as we speak today and uh we'll see how he's going to resolve uh, fulfilling some of the promises he made although i've been begun to hear a lot more talk about you can't solve everything in one year's budget i have four to work with um so i don't think uh supporters of the mayor are going to be entirely happy with what they hear in his budget statement he has a now 500 million dollar deficit to to uh to somehow fill in and 200 million of that is what the migrant crisis has cost the city so far. Totally unbudgeted, unprepared for, and it's not clear without further help from the state or the feds how we're gonna fill that gap. Ultimately on the migrant issue, we this is a, a cry out for the need for comprehensive immigration reform, which we've been talking about for 10 or 20 years now. And that means some of these Republican governors need to sit down with the other side, which they don't seem to be capable of doing, and working out some compromise, uh, particularly on on uh, uh, work rules, to let the folks who came hundreds and thousands of miles for a better life to actually get to work and bolster our economy and earn enough money to buy more than a tent outside a police station.
2: Let me ask you this, I, I heard someone uh, the other day talk about how 20,000 people came from Ukraine after the war started to Chicago. I haven't seen any of that talked about, but how that they got incorporated, uh, if that number is true or even if it's smaller. But uh, we had a lot of people coming from the U- Ukraine, and I think that there probably is an established Ukrainian community that would have helped absorb that. Do you have any insight on that or any awareness around that?
1: Well, there are some Ukrainian pockets. Uh, in fact, our um, state representative, um, Mike Quigley, um, was chair of a caucus representing uh, Ukrainians, and uh, he was a single vote in a, in a piece in Congress two weeks ago, a uh, single Democrat who voted against that particular continuing resolution because it didn't deal with funding um, further support of Ukraine. So there's a significant uh, Ukrainian population here. And yes, I don't know what the numbers are. 20,000 sounds high, but it, it could have reached that. But I know people who were doing one-on-one help, uh, families of three or four supporting one family at a time to get settled. And that wasn't just with Ukrainians. It was happening also with Afghanis and other uh, migrants, if you will, from other war-torn areas. So our city, in fact, has had a history and for those who don't want us to continue that kind of uh, welcoming city thing, it's it's not in our history. It's not really in our genome, I think, to reject folks who come to our shores of Lake Michigan to try to make a, a better life for themselves.
2: Well, yeah, we're going to be watching this. I'm sure we'll be
1: involved in some ways. Um, I, I appreciate, I'll say, that, you know, if your kids... Uh, uh, soccer practice is taken away because a field house has been turned over to emergency migrant centers. Why you're going to be upset, and it's hard for people, uh, parents in particular in that particular situation, to maybe take the long view. But the city is hard pressed. Um, I'm afraid they've been a little flat-footed so far in their moves to kind of cope with a unplanned crisis. Um, I don't mean that as a criticism, except I think some more creativity needs to be coming forward, as well as definitely more resources from somewhere.
2: Well said. Yeah, I was really glad when our governor uh, basically questioned the idea of the tents, Uh, not just because of Tents and Coal, but partly because of who the company is that's been doing the busing from Texas and Florida, those kind of places. How about we switch gears here? Sure. Originally, when I first said time to come on the show, Tom, you were going to talk about race and equity, the project you're involved with, and there was a certain timing issue on that. So here we are. We got the date right, I think. Come on and spill the beans. What's it all about, Tom?
1: Well, in the last two weeks, we have formally launched a project I've been working on for three years with a group of other journalists and educators called the Investigative Project on Race and Equity. And what we're trying to do is basically train journalists in data-driven reporting and collaborate with news organizations to uncover systemic racism in our society through compelling stories, human interest stories that inform the public discourse and hopefully create change. Uh, We feel that's important because an informed populace and policymakers might make better choices about how we solve some of these problems. And in this case, we released a report in conjunction with WBEZ Public Radio, uh, also appearing in the Chicago Sun-Times, on a 42 million records that the state has collected from police departments all around the state on traffic stops. Uh, the reason the state was collecting this data is that a young state center by the name of Barack Obama in an <laughs> earlier era, 20 years ago, was trying to stem the tide of what was seen as perhaps um, prejudicial stops by police, and um, what's happened in the meantime seems to indicate, as a result of our reporters' uh, analysis, is that the problem really hasn't gone away. In fact, for black drivers, it's probably gotten worse. Um, the um, the particular findings show that stops involving black drivers. Top 30% of all traffic stops statewide. That's up from 17% in 2004. Um, That trend is disturbing. And um, we have tried to document what might be going on in order that we might be able to find a better solution to what seems to be a particular issue that befalls Black and Latino drivers around the state. This is not just a city of Chicago issue, although we probably have had time to do more particular analysis and the stories which are available at wbez.org or our own uh, raceandequityproject.org. We'll give you the links to find the three part series and another one coming along. It includes an interactive database where people can look up community by community what their particular statistics are. Again, to try to help not just Chicago ones, but communities around the state figure out if they have a problem, and if so, what they need to do about it.
2: Uh, why do you think if there have been more stops of Black and Latino drivers? Um, do we have uh, any indication of what it might be when we we have more attention being paid to, you know, people have, they wear, dash they have dash cameras, they have cameras they wear, there's much more oversight, there's a lot of talk about it. Uh, What do you think the causes of uh, the increase in these stops?
1: Well, that would be conjecture on my part. Um, What the data shows is that there has been an increase in black drivers being stopped. Uh, What's interesting is that probable cause is supposed to be one reason for a traffic stop. But in in many cases, uh, even uh, non-moving violations uh, when analyzed show far more black drivers being stopped than, uh, you know, a tail light is out or you have uh, jiggly dice in your in your windshield hanging from your rear view mirror. Those are considered non-moving violations, but they seem to have prompted an increase in number of police stops, uh, particularly if you're driving while black.
2: You had said uh, something about stop and frisk being outlawed to me in, in a conversation. Does that relate in any way?
1: Our report did not address that issue. Uh, It could be something that happens down the line as other reporters take a look at our data, or for that matter, other policymakers take a a look at the results of our data. Um, The the fact is that even beyond the city limits, traffic stops are disproportionately affecting black drivers. Black drivers only make up 13% of overall drivers, but they make up 21% of all traffic stops throughout the state. Again, this is a statewide issue that we've identified. It's not just particular to Chicago. Um, I will leave it to the policymakers and, and legislators as well as the public uh, to to delve into this data further to figure out what some of the solutions might be.
2: Tom, do you want to? Uh, do you have any more about the project on race and equity? You want to share where it's going, uh, what the plans are?
1: Well, we're very excited to have finally launched, and we're looking forward to begin offering uh, training programs. We actually hired three apprentices to work with our two lead reporters and the WBZ staff to help crunch these numbers. We're very excited we were able to engage um, these young reporters to teach them some basic investigative skills involving data. Um, we hope to be offering uh, further trainings uh, over the next couple of months. Um, we are very grateful for the funding we've gotten so far. You know, I always have to thank our funders. Um, the Chicago Community Trust gave us a big boost last January with a significant grant. We've also had support from the Joyce Foundation, the Field Foundation, and the Chicago Headline Club. Um, there's no doubt we're no doubt that our affiliate that the collective experience of the 12 to 14 members of the advisory committee, who've really volunteered many hours. Uh, meeting almost weekly on Saturday afternoons to pull this effort off. Um, that kind of talent will be contributing to these trainings and to moving the work of this project forward.
2: Uh, well, we're going to run out of time, but we I want to make uh, sure everyone has it. They can go to raceandequityproject.org Correct. for more information. Exactly. And uh, I'm going to throw one more question at you. Uh, what's the latest status of Chicago uh, newspapers? And I guess where I'm going is, what do you think about uh, public radio buying the Sun Times and the Sun Times uh, coming out with really some good news and reporting? You
1: got anything you want to share on that? Well, I I think you summed it up rather well. I think that the partnership between uh, WBEZ Chicago Public Media and the Chicago Sun Times. Um, is uh, both part of a trend of uh, legacy newspapers uh, turning to the nonprofit business model. Uh, it, it is still an evolving business model. After all, being nonprofit is just a tax status. It's not how you run your business. But I think uh, Chicago readers and viewers and listeners have been enriched by the partnership so far. I think it has helped both uh, those media outlets tremendously and uh to be honest while um the tribune still produces some some good reports um i believe the sun times is the more important newspaper now if you want to follow local news
2: uh this has been good tom is there anything that you want that's not coming up on your mind you want to share or you want to say you have had
1: enough of me today i i've always enjoyed talking with you michael and this again has been a very rich conversation I look forward to listening to your next guest, Corky Siegel. I think he's going to be celebrating a little bit of a birthday. Yeah, he's getting up there. He's going to try to catch up to me. I would invite people to check out raceinequityproject.org, the investigative project on race and equity, which you can also find on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and a little bit on that thing we used to call Twitter.
2: Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you around the neighborhood, talking to you more, and know that you're always welcome to host Uh, an edition of this show and you can certainly help uh, write any of the script that you used to do all the time. Now I have to do it. Um, But I appreciate your help and your support. You're a wonderful guy. Take care, Michael. Right on. Everybody else, we're going to take a little musical break and then we're coming back with the one and only Corky Siegel talking about a big event he's having kind of in celebration of his own 80th birthday. Be right back. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial.
0: Un, dos, tres, cuatro...
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Live from the Heartland. Uh, Once again, I'm Michael James here in Chicago. And our next guest is someone who's been on our show numerous times, but not lately, Uh, the one and only Corky Siegel. And he is here via Zoom. We're probably just about a few blocks apart uh, here in the Fighting 49th Ward. Uh, How are you, Corky? Really great. Really great. You always say you're great. You're great all the time.
3: Uh, my, my body is starting to have opinions.
2: I know how that is. I think I got a couple years on you, but one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was an event that is going to happen at City Winery coming up in celebration of your 80th birthday. How about filling us in on some details? Who's playing with you? What you got yeah. planned for this birthday party? Yeah,
3: well, it's a, it's a regular gig at the City Winery, and it's with my chamber blues, blues ensemble, and most of them are here in Chicago. One of our players is flying in from LA, and uh, this is a, a sort of a semi-rare event musically because chamber blues. The last number of years, we've usually had guest artists with us come and perform with us, and I've rearranged the whole set and wrote a bunch of, uh, you know chamber music for them. So this, we're going back, we're doing a lot of our own material, a couple new tunes, but our own material. And uh, it's string quartet, Indian tabla, and uh, blues harmonica, blues piano. A lot of it's instrumental, but there's a bunch of vocals also.
2: That's nice. So you're gonna do this at City Winery, which is at 1200 West Randolph Street. And this is uh, taking place on Sunday, the 22nd.
3: Right. And thank what you. What time? Uh, 7 o'clock, I believe. Right, Holly? Yeah, doors open at 5 because it is a dinner facility and um, really good food. And the show starts at 7. Oh, uh, this will be nice. And we have some special guests in the audience. We, we're going to have Holland Wolf's daughter, daughters. We're going to have uh, Little Walter's daughter. I'm going to tell a little story about Little Walter and Holland Wolf. A uh, whole bunch of people, are, people are flying in from all over. We may have someone flying in from Germany, but I know there's someone flying in from California and Connecticut and all over the place.
2: Oh, that's great. Well, you mentioned Holland Wolf, and I know that uh, you and I were talking recently about a photograph that you had to buy. Uh, and it is a picture of you on Howland Wolf's uh, knee. Right. How about you show us that picture for the people who are viewing it on YouTube and Can TV? Other people who are listening to the show will just have to take our word for it that there is a very young Corky Steagel sitting on the lap of uh, Howland Wolf along with a few other people. Jim Swall's there. Who else is in that picture? Jack Myers. And
3: that—that's Jack Myers, or my little fingers wiggling, and that's our drummer Russ Chadwick, uh,
2: and the late, uh, late Jim Schwal, late Jim Schwal, uh, and the late Holland Wolf too. Well, that's a wonderful. Where was and that? Late Russ taken? and the late Jack. Well, it's a lot of late people. How, our, where, did, where was that taken?
3: That was taken at the backstage of the Cafe of Gogo, and my remember recollection of it was that it was taken with. Uh, uh Clayton Thomas. What's his first name from the uh Blood, Sweat, and Tears? I don't know it. Yeah. Anyway, he, he was a lead singer with uh with the uh Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and I remember him posing, telling me, "I'll oh, sit on his knee," and did it, and he posed the whole thing. But the guy that actually has credit for taking the photo uh, is. Uh,
2: phil oaks brother oh the great phil oaks i had a one afternoon during the berkeley vietnam day committee in 64 or 5 where i was entrusted to hang around with phil oaks until he was going to perform so i just remember being at a lawyer's house up in the hills of berkeley hanging out with phil oaks you know it was great
3: and i had phil phil oaks had dinner with me
2: one evening. Well, for the younger people who don't know Phil Oaks, he was a wonderful musician, very political guy. And, uh, well, he's another late, great guy. Um, Well, let me ask you this, Corky. uh, You have been involved in this new movie. uh, and There's been a couple renditions of it, I think. But there's a movie called Born in Chicago. And um, how about telling us a little bit about that movie? Sometimes I get it confused with uh, there was a movie about uh, Born from the Heart, or something that was a Paul Butterfield movie. Some of that overlaps. But fill us in on the Born in Chicago flick.
3: Yeah. So, The Born in Chicago started out as completely a story about the young white kids in Chicago in the early 60s that fell in love with the blues and ended up being at the feet of the blues masters like Colin Wolf and Muddy Waters and Otis Spann and all those guys. And so I'm involved in that story because it involved just a handful of kids. You know, it was definitely Paul Butterfield and Mike Bloomfield, Nick Revanitis, Harvey Mandel, Barry Goldberg, uh, and the Siegel Schwab Band. And my own situation was a little different because they approached the Blues Masters, all these other guys, in different ways, and sat in with them. And I, I, that's not what happened with me. We never approached them. We were just, uh, Jim and I were looking for, Jim Schwal and I were looking for somewhere to play. We walked into this place on the south side of Chicago, and, we, and the guy said, what are you doing here? And we said, well, and we were the only white kids anywhere for miles around. And it was in the afternoon and he said, well, set up on the floor, the ladies are coming in this afternoon, you could play for them. So we sat up on the floor and we played and he hired us immediately. And we didn't, I didn't know this. And then he hired us a bass player and a drummer and asked us to play every Thursday night from nine at night to four in the morning. And it was on 43rd and Vincennes. And it ended up being the hangout for all these blues players. So here here I am listening to my albums and listening to Howlin' Wolf flying out of the grooves of my album and Muddy Waters and all those guys. And weeks later, here I am on stage playing with their bass players and drummers and who shows up and sits in with us, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Otis Spann, Willie Dixon. One guy comes up and says, Corky, I'd love to sit in. But he seemed like he was drinking a lot. I to Come back another time And the audience. Said, hey, let him sit in. That's little Walter. Wow. <laughs> and it gets worse. I'm thinking, Who's little Walter? And then he hops up on stage and he plays. And I go, Oh my God, that's little Walter. So I was just dipping my little teeny toe into the muddy waters of the blues. And here I am surrounded. By these blues masters taking us under their wing and adopting us and so i was like as i call myself an innocent victim of incredible good fortune so i didn't we didn't approach the blues masters we were just out of nowhere surrounded by them and we're up on stage with them all night long every thursday night
2: wow you know do you remember a club called the Blue Flame at 39th and Drexel?
3: Yeah, I don't think I ever ever was there. I used
2: to go there and see uh, um Paul Butterfield and I think he had Howlin' Wolf some of his guys playing with him. That's right. And they put down a a piece in between the back bar and the bar and they had a, there had it was a shake dancer. Uh, it was quite a scene, but I was like the me and whoever I was with were the only white kids there. Right. It was a pretty special time, I gotta say.
3: Yeah, and that
2: was ended up
3: being Paul Butterfield's band. It was probably Jerome Arnold and Sam Lay, and they Sam were both with Wolf before that.
2: Well, the Born in Chicago movie is really good. I don't know if it's shown anywhere, but can people get it? Is it available?
3: It's available. You could find it on the internet, it's streaming. And uh, what I could tell you is that basically it's a love story about the white kids falling in love with the blues and loving these blues masters and them returning the love. But now the movie develops as some amazing footage of Muddy and Wolf and, and Butterfield and Bloomfield and just some incredible footage. And then there's a lot of interviews, you know, with Bob Dylan and I think Keith Richards, they put back in it. And of course they're interviewing me. And, and, uh, so it's quite amazing that I was able to,
2: part of Corky, well, before we tell people one more time about your birthday party, uh, I gonna, I'm gonna ask you to give us a little autobiographical uh, picture. R- talk about yourself. Where did you start out? How'd you get into music? some things that are highlights. We've got a few minutes to kill and or to fill up. and uh, <laughs> I, th- I think it would be really good to have a, a little bit of your own personal information documented on live from the heartland
3: okay well i started out trying to learn to play jazz saxophone and i was having a lot of trouble with it and i realized i didn't have the particular skills necessary to be a musician but i really wanted to be a musician so i found ways of doing it and this has been a boon to my career if you want to call it a career it's been a You've had a great to, career. A, a, a boon to my experience of playing music, which is a lot of the stuff that I do comes out different because I sort of have to approach it in a different way. And so, you know, I'm writing symphonic music. I have a new symphonic piece. I'm I'm jumping right ahead to the future. I'm working on Go oh, back and forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, that, that was what, what's, you know, I started out, and then as I say, I called myself an innocent victim of incredible good fortune, because uh, I got to play with these blues masters. I got to be, write with uh, uh, Rado and Ragney who were writing Hair. We didn't know they were writing Hair, but Jim and I were writing it with them. And then a, couple, a year later, we found out it's Hair, so we were getting to work with. Then we produced Joni Mitchell's uh, uh, demo tape for Joni Mitchell with Circle Game on it, you know, and you know, just like like crazy stuff. Before we were an entity, we were getting to do all that stuff. It was quite amazing. And that's and then Seiji Ozawa comes in in 1966 and wants me to play with the Chicago Symphony, and so I get into the symphonic and the classical music thing. But it's nothing that I pursued. It's stuff that just happened to me, and and that's sort of, you know, it, it's like an amazing, and it's still going on today. You know, I got commissioned to write all these symphonic music. I I never wrote a piece of music in my life, and I didn't know how. And my first commission was with the San Francisco Symphony to write a piece for Arthur Fiedler in front of six thousand people at the Civic Auditorium. It's the first piece of music I ever wrote. Of you know any kind of classical
2: uh, style. What led you to the blues when you first when you were a younger guy? When I first saw you, um, uh, I think maybe before, but we're we mixed up on that. But I remember I was at my first love in being whatever it was in Lincoln Park, and uh, I had come back from Berkeley to work in Joint Community Union in Uptown and. That's where I first saw you play, and you were you and uh, Schwal were doing blues then. Siegel Schwall Blues Band it was called. Yeah, tell us a little bit about how you got to that place and that event, maybe.
3: It's funny because we were never really called ourselves a blues band. It was a Siegel Schwall band, but our music was completely inspired by the blues. But we had talked to each other, and we didn't feel like we had to play the blues. We were just whatever we felt like. But anyway. So um, and I remember the be in in 1966. I remember you being there because I have a photo with you in it. <laughs> Out of people and could spot you. And then um, the, the, the thing for me that made me fall in love with it was its simplicity. It was accessible for a musician to learn to play. but it was infinite in the possibilities of expression and emotion. And it's still, blues still stands and sits on the pedestal of, of what you do to express yourself in music. That is the example, blues. Uh, and I don't take anything away from any other form of music. All music is expressive, just as expressive as the blues, but some schools of thought make you say, you know, we want to let the music do the talking. We don't want to move too much. We don't want to let our personalities get involved. And I think that's craziness. But blues doesn't do that. When I saw Wolf and Muddy, they threw themselves one hundred percent into the music without holding back, and, and and that was very attractive to me for blues. And so, Porky I-
2: Siegel, what was what was the um, what led you to give up? the saxophone if you actually gave it up and pick up the harmonica
3: well you almost answered the question right there the saxophone did not fit in my (laughs) pocket (laughs) and it was heavy when i put it down and the harmonica was light and i was able to put it in my pocket that was that was the main thing i'm a very practical guy
2: uh do you have any uh Friends and other musicians that you want to share some stuff about. I'm thinking about the time you were at the Heartland Cafe, and you were there with Country Joe McDonald, of Country Joe and the Fish. Ah. I just I just remembered that while we were talking. The whole band. band. Yeah, I remember meeting him. I remember him playing at the Finish Hall in Berkeley in like '64 or '5, and. him being around political stuff he was a political guy is he still alive
3: yeah i I see him well i haven't seen him for about a couple months but i i used to do a zoom with him every week
2: well say hi and tell him i'd love to have him on this show (laughs) (laughs) Great. so let's go back one more time and just remind people that one of the reasons that you're on live from the heartland now it's because we're going to celebrate Chicago music legend Corky Siegel's 80th birthday at City Winery, 1200 West Randolph, Sunday, 7 p.m. That's Sunday, October 22nd. And you tell us, Corky, why people should come? Oh, <laughs>
3: um, well, there's still seats available, which is a good reason to come. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a good reason to come if there were no seats. but. Uh, the the uh a, um, well, chamber blues specifically. There is literally, and I could say this straight face, there is absolutely nothing like it in the world.
2: That's certainly, for sure.
3: Certainly, every musician is unique. So you could say that uh, really about every musician. There's nothing like Jim Gelleretto, my saxophone buddy, or Ernie Watts. There's nothing like them. But chamber blues, you can't hear anything that is even distantly like chamber blues, unless you hear chamber blues. So you, you could only be in one place at one time. I'm 80 years, in the, 80 years old. I'm not saying anything else after that. <laughs> so you have a chance to hear chamber blues. It'll be an experience like you've never heard. Boom.
2: That's- well, I hope I get there, Corky. I haven't got a ticket yet, but I, I imagine I could weasel my way in. I bet you could. And, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, by the I way, guess,
3: you are looking
2: really good. Well, I got to tell you that I have a million secrets, but yeah. the one <laughs> that I think has been really a, a good one is I go to the McGaw, Y and Evanston four days a week, uh, at right now in the pool at seven 30 in the morning. And I basically run in the deep water and they actually play music. Sometimes Mahalia Jackson this morning, they were playing another man gone to the County farm. I think it was muddy waters. Um, so these lifeguards have got music set up and I don't swim because I have crashed shoulders, but I, I right. do, I dance in the pool. I run in the pool.
3: I was going to say um, you use your little, uh, Inflatable wings, right?
2: Well, I don't use those. I just I I got enough on me to float a little bit. So I got goggles. I'm underwater. You look pretty good yourself. So it's enough of this uh, mutual admiration stuff going on. I'm looking forward to you uh, seeing you, and I miss seeing you. I used to see you and Holly all the time at the Heartland Cafe. Um, and I uh, I got a million stories popping in my head, but that's enough. There's we- Holly. Ha, it's great to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. We miss it's you. It's good. Piquin and I used to swim at uh, the YMCA in Evanston uh, uh, twice a week, but we've we've stopped. We now should probably go back. Now we
3: <laughs> walk like at least a half hour to an hour every day. We do our resistant bands mm-hmm. every other day when we des- when we can't, and we do a lot of we do some yoga and we do.
2: Uh, meditation almost every day and you guys keep it up and i'll look forward to seeing you real soon both of you
1: okay, okay thank and a you shout out to alvina all
2: right know. that's a little secret we both know this woman alvina yes. who's a wonderful woman yes
1: yeah. all right take
2: care adios we'll see adios. you bye bye okay everybody we want to thank all of you for tuning in to live from the heartland or however you're getting it can tv Uh, youtube.com slash Heartland Media, WLUW, Google and Spotify podcasts. Um, There's a lot of uh, challenges to all of us out there in the world right now. And so more than ever, I wanna encourage you all to do good in the world. The world needs every bit of good that you do, that Corky does, that I do, that Tom Clark does, that Katie Hogan does, those of you who know from the show. Thanks to all the people who make the show possible. Our guest Corky Siegel, our guest Tom Clark, our engineer Hal James, our our producers Lynn Orman, Tom Clark, and Katie Hogan. Doing? See you next week. All power to Do. the people. Over and out. Are you doing the best
0: you can? Mm-hmm. Over the mountain, under the big blue sky, you got a dream awaiting. can see it in your eye, it may not come easy, but you know you've got a friend, I'll be by your side the entire ride, just let me hear you say amen, are you doing, doing, are you doing the best you can, Mm -hmm. tell me are you doing. To can hmm done. Est-ce que tu done? Le meilleur de toi-même. Parce que tu l'aimes. Too done. Est-ce que tu done? Le meilleur de toi-même. I'm in, gone too limp. Are you doing the best you can? Tell me, are you doing?